0: You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change Podcast by the team at Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. This is a show about the innovators and entrepreneurs developing solutions to climate change.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change Podcast. My name is Christoph Jospe. I have a sit-in for the usual co-host, but you've heard him before on the podcast. If you're a longtime listener, we've got Ryan Anderson here. Hello. And it is a wonderful day here in Salina, Kansas. Ryan and I have actually been attending the Prairie Festival at the Land Institute. And we'll link it in the show notes. We had done a podcast with uh, Fred and Tim at the Land Institute and talking about the perennialization of agriculture. We might get into that a bit today, but it's a different type of podcast. We're extremely humbled and honored to have this guest sitting across from us. Ryan, would you like to say a few words about him?
0: Our guest today is Bill McKibben, who really needs no introduction because one of our few guests who has written an autobiography, a little memoir called Oil and Honey, came out a few years back. And that's really what I, where I wanted to start it with, with you today, is Bill, is how did you get into that? What is oil and honey and how did that play into your role in the current climate movement?
2: Well, I got into the climate movement back well before there was one. I wrote the first book about climate change for a general audience. It came out 30 years ago this week, in fact, a book called The End of Nature. It was excerpted in The New Yorker and uh, was the first kind of treatment at that length of what we then called the greenhouse effect, what we for a while called global warming. Then we called climate change. Now I think people are pretty much calling it the climate crisis. So I wrote that book and wrote many more books and lots of articles and things For about 15 years, convinced that we were engaged in an argument over climate change and that writing more books and having more podcasts and things was what we needed to do because eventually the weight of evidence would carry the day and our leaders would do what they should. At a certain point, about 15 years ago, about halfway into my life in this topic, I came to understand that, in fact, I was misanalyzing. We'd won the argument. We'd won it long ago. The science was robust and clear. We'd won the argument, but we were losing the fight because the fight was what fights are always about, not data and reason, but money and power. And the other side in this fight, the fossil fuel industry had a surplus of both, and they were willing to use them to, well, to extend their business model for a little while longer, even at the cost of breaking the planet. The only way to fight that power was with other power. And that's when we started finally trying to build a movement. I founded with some young people, 350.org a decade ago. And after a – well, after 10 years of full-on campaigning, this climate movement is now, thanks to people like Greta Thunberg, reached a kind of crescendo in, in recent days. So we're in a different place than we were 30 years ago. Some of that's good. We've got a good movement. Some of it's bad. We've got 40 parts per million more. CO2 in the atmosphere. So, take your pick. Really, 60 parts more CO2 in the atmosphere.
1: Right. And it it depends on the time of year. It's always interesting to see the earth breathing (laughs) when you have more trees in the north and the south. And so, what are we today? Like 408, but earlier we peaked at around 412 this Uh, year? Actually, I think we
2: touched 415 in the spring. Right around May 31st is always the The spike, the highest point in the annual spike. And then, yes, the northern hemisphere, we grow some stuff and down goes the level of CO2 and then it comes back up to a higher point every year. We're gaining about two and a half parts per million CO2 annually now, which is much higher than it was a while ago. Partly that's because we keep pouring more and more carbon into the atmosphere by burning more and more coal and gas and oil. The perhaps even scarier part, as you know, is that science is beginning to suggest now that the natural mechanisms for removing carbon from the atmosphere, forests, oceans, soil, are losing some of that capacity to do so, that we really have begun to break the planet's systems in those ways. If that continues, it doesn't bear thinking about it, So,
1: You said take your pick, hope or- pessimism, and it seems like you've already picked pessimism
2: here, but I, I want to go no, back. No, I'm, I'm actually uh, I'm, I'm entirely willing to be hopeful. I think actually the job of those of us who work on this is to pick neither, but to get up each day figuring out how to move the ball as far as possible.
0: Yeah. So speaking of moving the ball as far as possible or moving it back, I guess, in the sense of atmospheric concentrations, why 350 and how do we sure. get there? from where we are now at 4.15 or 4.10.
2: So you guys will be more interested in the history of this than most people because 3.50 really is a, a sort of new number. In 2007, I called up my old friend Jim Hansen at NASA, the greatest climatologist the world has ever had, the Paul Revere who was Gutsy enough to go and tell Congress in 1988 that, in fact, the era of global warming had begun. The person who inaugurated public discussion of this topic also happened to have the best data set for how fast it was warming and the best computer model for what was going to go on in the future. I called Jim and said, we want to do global campaigning around carbon, and I think to do it, we need a number, partly because we want to work globally and Arabic numerals are going to work better than English words. So what's the number here? How, actually, what kind of carbon concentration is simply too much? Now, the prevailing wisdom at the time, I think, was that 450 parts per million was what people sort of in 2007 thought about as a kind of danger point. And that was, but that was very rudimentary. There was no real good reason for it. 10 years earlier, the danger point that we talked about was 550 parts per million. And the reason for that was simple. It was twice the pre-industrial concentration and twice was relatively easy to model on a computer. So it had the psychological effect of being the thing that we focused on. that where people first drew a red line. But it was clear by then that that red line was too high. That 550 parts per million was actually suicidal. So people's Sites had drifted downward to 450 parts per million, and I think that's what I thought Jim would land. In fact, at least for a while, I was the proud owner of the URL for 450.org, assuming that might be where we'd be. Jim called back three, four months later and said, "Look, the team has been working hard on this. We're going to publish a paper at AGU in a few weeks." Um, that's the American Geophysical <laughs> Union. They meet yeah, in San like Francisco. Out acronyms here. <laughs> <laughs> they meet in San Francisco each. December and it's where the important earth science papers get delivered. And you know, Hansen is I think about as close to royalty at mm-hmm. AGU as it is possible to get. And he said the number, you, you, we've got you a number, thank you. You're not going to like the number. Uh, the number is 350 parts per million. And I didn't like the number for obvious reasons. We were already way past it. That paper that they published which I think will historically go down as one of the most important pieces of scientific effort of this millennia, I've said that any value for carbon in the atmosphere greater than 350 parts per million was not compatible with the planet on which civilization devolved or to which life on Earth is adapted. You, you guys have read enough scientific papers to know that strong language for an abstract of a paper. But truthfully, no one's advanced a counterargument of any power in the decade since. The only argument people even tried to advance is that 350 may be too high. That in fact, the trigger may have been somewhere between 280 and 350. As Jim points out, that probably doesn't make much difference at this point <laughs> since we're sprinting in the opposite direction. But it was very helpful as a number in terms of making people realize this was not a problem for the future. It was a problem for now. It was the difference between going to the doctor and having the doctor say, if you keep eating that way, someday your cholesterol will be too high and you're going to have a heart attack. Or going to the doctor and the doctor saying, I, I just looked at your blood work. Your cholesterol is off the charts. You're in the zone where people keel over tomorrow. I think you've already had a small stroke anyway. That's the point at which people were like, okay, what pill do you want me to take? You know, What do I need to do? So 350 was pretty quickly, 350.org, that the idea and the organizing behind it was fairly powerful. The first day of action, which was 10 years ago this October, we had 5,200 demonstrations in 181 countries. It was the first beginnings of what we now see as this kind of mass action that had 7 million people in the streets over the last couple of weeks all around the world.
1: So I like that you're using metaphors. We love using metaphors mm. too. I want to try something out on you. And I guess just frame frame this challenge a little mm. bit because, you know, carbon dioxide has a really long residence time mm. in the atmosphere. And actually, we're not at 408. We're something we're touching up on almost 500 if you look If you at, count in if you the equivalent yeah other greenhouse gases and so it's probably even worse but we know it stays there and so we've we've surpassed our, our limit and let me here's the metaphor it's like we're on this this bus that's potentially driving off a cliff an uncharted cliff we don't know how bad the cliff it is but all the science shows that it's a cliff and actually our bus is further along the road than it actually feels like it is because the atmosphere takes a really long time maybe yes. 20 years or so so what we're experiencing today which is indeed, anthropogenic global warming is not 408 per million. It's more like 380 or something like that. So we got to get off the bus, we got to put the bus into reverse, and we got to get back to 350. But how do we actually get there, given that the CO2 is already in the atmosphere? And like you said, right, the oceans are slowing down because they're acidifying and not doing what they used
2: to do. Right. I mean, there's not unbelievable mystery about at least some of the mechanisms that do this. I mean, you know, uh, we've known for quite a while. That, uh, for instance, trees are a useful thing to have because they do the opposite of us. It's proven technology They as well. take in CO2 and, <laughs> and hand back oxygen. And what do you know? You put one up and it drops an acorn and the next one grows. I mean, this is a useful... <laughs> a forest is a useful thing. In fact, we're finding out more about them all the time. I was just doing... Some reporting for The New Yorker a few weeks ago on the work that uh, a guy named Bill Muma, who was at Tufts for years, has been doing on forests. It's, it's one of these things that you'd think someone would have done a long time ago, but he did it a, a little bit in response to all the stuff that all the studies about tree planting and we said, yes, tree planting a good idea, but as we know, there's not enough ground to just plant endless number of trees. And as he pointed out, you actually get more carbon accumulation in the second quarter century of at least on the species he was studying of a tree's life and yet more in the third quarter century. And we don't really have data set beyond that, but there's no reason to think in fact that it doesn't. So not cutting down trees may turn out to be at least as important as planting new ones. So there's a number of things like this we can and should be doing. But we should resist the temptation to think that any of them alone scale to the point where we, as I have been saying for 30 years and widely quoted as saying in one scheme or another, there's no silver bullet here. There may be enough silver buckshot if you pick it all up to make some damp. Job one, however, and let's be clear about this I mean, the work that everybody that you guys are doing on pulling carbon out of the atmosphere is all really crucial. Job one, with a, with a bullet is to stop pouring more in. I mean, everybody's got a job, and they're all important, and we all work on them. But the most immediate benefit, the thing that we absolutely have to do in the next few years is make the transition off coal and gas and oil. Stop putting more carbon in because those flows, every one of those flows, every year of that flow makes the job we have to do of pulling it out that much harder and bigger. Because every, as you know, what we're talking about are volume problems, scale problems. And it's really important for people to realize that, that it's not like pollution that we were sort of used to dealing with. It's not like carbon with one oxygen atom, carbon monoxide, which is a minor trace gas that came out of your back of your car and it killed you. If you breathed it, Carbon with two oxygen atoms, carbon dioxide isn't like that. It doesn't kill you and it comes out of the back of your car in volume. You know, you burn a gallon of gasoline, it weighs, what, eight pounds, you release five and a half pounds of carbon, it combines with those oxygen atoms, you've released 22 pounds of CO2 by burning your gallon of gasoline. I mean, it's a volume problem and the quickest way to deal with volume. (laughs) problems like that is to stop making them worse. There are many rules of holes, but the very first one is stop digging.
0: And there's been a tremendous amount of progress within the mobilizations of the climate movement, you know, that you've been a part of since the beginning uh, around fossil fuel divestment campaigns and Mm. so forth. But a question that, you know, we have as a company focused on building a carbon removal marketplace Mm. and getting back to this, you know, the silver buckshot is that do we actually need the oil and gas companies to be part of it in terms of running the system in reverse, so to speak, going from not just extracting it,
2: but pulling the carbon down? Well, you guys would, you guys may know better about this. In political terms, what we need to do is break the power of the fossil fuel companies. That's what keeps us from ever really grappling with the fact that we keep pouring carbon into the atmosphere. Their political power based on their wealth is such that they are able to own this debate or at least have been up until now. We're beginning to see signs of that grip at least beginning to falter a little bit. Speaking for myself, I think it would be useful to drive a stake as firmly through the heart of Exxon and Shell and BP and Peabody and everybody else and then work with the landscape that you're left with after that.
1: You're getting feisty, Bill. Mm. I like it. Yeah. I, yesterday, Amory Lovins gave an interesting presentation. I didn't agree with everything he had to say, but I did enjoy some of his comments where the fossil fuel industry is actually in the wrong business of selling hydrocarbons. They should see themselves as an energy service provider. If they were to wake up tomorrow and say, hey, we're in the energy delivery business and we're in also the atmospheric service cleanup business...
2: Would you change your mind or would you still want to put a stake through them? I, I just don't think it's going to happen. I mean, the history of technological transitions indicates that the incumbents virtually never are the people who do, you know, go on to do the I mean, it was not the guys who were good at building uh, carriages for horses that turned out to be good at building horseless carriages, you know. And there's a thousand other technological transfer transition stories that go the same way. Because if you're Exxon, your expertise is not in being an energy services provider. Your expertise is in finding new pools of oil and drilling for them. That's what your entire business is geared to. Everybody who works in your office, that's what they're... And the idea that... But that doesn't mean someone else isn't going to play that role. It doesn't mean that the flows of capital that are now supporting companies like Exxon can't be diverted to support people who do have good ideas about what's coming next. So far, I mean, look at the much less complicated task of just providing solar power or wind power. These are now the cheapest ways to provide power in the world, almost everywhere. Have Exxon or BP or anyone diverted any significant percentage of their CAPEX to doing this? No. The highest, I saw the Financial Times had a piece... Two days ago, uh, one of the European oil companies, Total, I can't remember which, the greenest of them all had devoted 4% of its capital expenditure to anything that might even be vaguely labeled as responsible, and most of which was probably ethanol anyway, which is pretty hard to label that way. Instead, they've diverted huge amounts of resources to the political campaigning that's kept us for 30 years from doing anything about any of this. So... I could be wrong, but my guess is Exxon does not ride to the rescue in the final reel of this particular western.
1: I love how poetic you describe it, and I think it's an important insight. To I
2: hope I'm not screwing up your business plan along the way here on the.
1: Oh no, we're we're just shills for the fossil fuel industry. I didn't. I don't know if you you figured it I figured out. Figured it but... out. Yeah, it was pretty yeah, clear. That's what brings us to the Land institution. It was pretty today. clear. It was pretty clear. You <laughs> caught us, Bill. Um, but I mean, we're talking about sort of levers to push on, yeah, and. Forces of change,
2: and I'll tell you what I'll tell you. A lever, I think, is important to push on now. I just wrote a long piece for the New Yorker about it. It's financial markets. These are the guys who've been and and completely shamelessly. I mean, just amoral, bad people. I mean, the big four banks in the U.S. Chase. City, Wells Fargo, Bank of America have dramatically increased their lending to the fossil fuel industry in the years since the Paris Climate Accords. Chase, which leads all contenders, and by the way, whose lead director was the CEO of Exxon for 15 years before he retired to become the lead director at Chase Manhattan, they've lent huge sums of money for the most extreme and absurd projects. You know, the deep, deep sea drilling, the Arctic, drilling the tar sands, pipelines, uh, on and on and on, that's bad. That's why we're going to be campaigning hard against them. What makes it interesting is that unlike politics, our other kind of center of power, which takes a long time to change, when change comes in financial markets and in the financial community, sometimes it comes very fast, and I mean by very fast in a matter of hours. I mean. You wake up one morning and the valuations on the stock market tell you one story in the world about the world. And by 3 in the afternoon, you turn on CNNBC and there's an entirely different story about the world that's being told. doesn't happen often. I don't know if we can make it happen. But the divestment fight against the fossil fuel industry, which has been very, very useful and become very, very big, is also going to be turned against the financial industry that is their lifeline.
1: Interesting. So – I mean, you you flew here. We flew here.
2: Yeah. The global economy
1: still runs on fossil fuels. Most of our energy sources come from fossil fuels. You know, you hear Greta Thunberg talk about the global economy, and I think she's very eloquent in calling a spade a spade and pointing it at the hypocrisy. But still, we
2: humans would not survive if we were to just shut off fossil fuels tomorrow. It's well, just- we wouldn't have survived we going to shut off tomorrow. No one is saying that, Okay. But it's very clear we need to shut them off much sooner than people thought we did and much sooner than we're currently planning to. And it's really clear that we're capable of doing that. Your brothers and sisters who work in the engineering of renewable energy have done a remarkable job over the last 10 years. Think about from your own experience in fields that you know about, carbon capture or whatever it is, think about what it means that they drove down the price of a solar panel 90% in the last decade, okay? And that storage batteries are now falling on the same kind of aggressive curve. I mean, that's the one thing that's really broken right in this debate about climate change uh, since we started. The one thing where we've seen not incremental improvement and possibility but exponential order of magnitude change. It means that if we wanted to, we were at the place now where we could rapidly replace most of the things for which we use fossil fuel. That we're not doing so is some combination of inertia, but mostly reflects the staggering power of the fossil fuel industry to prevent change.
1: I appreciate that response. I guess where I was going with my question is to say Today, we're just dumping our carbon into the atmosphere for free. There's Yo. no there's no way to put it back. But if actually the fossil fuel industry were to say, okay, yeah, you know, we get that this is an externality. We get that this is causing climate change. Actually we agree with the science and you know what? We're going to do something about it. We're going to remove one ton or more for every ton that we emit. And Exxon just has a come to Jesus moment. They say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm responsible for this. For every ton we emit,
2: we'll remove two tons. Mm-hmm. Would that let him off the hook? If Exxon's willing to do that, then I'm happy to say, you know what? It won't be necessary for the entire C-suite of Exxon to go to jail. That was, seems like a relative reasonable compromise to me for the 30 years of damage that they've done by preventing the... I'd be willing to make that deal. You could stay, That's your stay-out-of-jail card? Okay. That sounds good to me. I take <laughs> your point.
0: Uh, So I'd be remiss to not ask you here as as we wrap up your bill about your latest book and you mentioned, you know, falter kind of in passing. So tell us about that. I mean, it's about the human game and you sort of pick these, you know, two, you call them sort of technologies of solar and nonviolence. You've touched on the solar part. You've touched on the resistance movement a bit, you know, of climate justice and youth activism. So how does that all play into this narrative we've been talking about here?
2: Well, I think that's the place where this all comes together. Two of the great inventions of the 20th century, it turns out, were the solar panel, which is really coming to fruition in the 21st. Beautiful not just, let me add, because it generates carbon-free electricity. And, of course, it comes with, you know, they're not the most beautiful physical objects in the world, and producing them creates some pollution and so Actually, on and so forth. Actually coal, right? You burn metallurgical
1: coal to depends,
2: produce solar. Depends. I mean, I in fact, there are now people who are uh, saying... They're managing to produce solar panels straight off wind and solar power. So we'll see. But at any rate, beautiful also in that they decentralize the control of our energy system. They take it out of the hands of a few... I mean, at the moment, an immense amount of the inequality political and economic that also devastates our period on Earth flows from the fact that a few people Sit on top of the deposits of coal and gas and oil that are the most valuable things on the planet. That's why the Koch brothers have been able to purchase a political party and use it to all kinds of ugly ends. That's why we pay attention to, you know, complete and utter horrible people like Vladimir Putin or the king of saudi arabia i mean not because the king of saudi arabia has some interesting idea about how to run the world he just cuts people's heads off with swords if he doesn't like them you know in a world that ran on ubiquitous and omnipresent solar energy we'd still have i have no doubt bad people and we'd also have some solar billionaires but i don't think we'd have the equivalent of Koch brothers the reason that The Koch brothers and Exxon and so on have fought so hard against solar energy is precisely because (laughs) once you get the panels on your roof, when the sun comes up, your power is delivered for free. And if you became incredibly wealthy on the business model of write me a check every month for your delivery of energy, this just seems like the stupidest business model anyone ever (laughs) invented, you know? So I like solar power for that too. Nonviolence is the other great invention of the 20th century. The suffragettes and Gandhi and Dr. King and a million other people in the civil rights movement and so on and so forth figured out the kind of counterintuitive and decentralized power source that came from a willingness to take on some unearned suffering. I mean, it shouldn't work, and yet. It has over and over and over again. In fact, the political scientists tell us now that the success rate of nonviolent revolutions is far higher than of armed and violent conflict for obvious reasons. You're not picking the weapon that the other side specializes in. You know, you're picking the one they don't know how to handle. So, I mean, I'm not telling you we're going to win I'm telling you, if we win, at least in part, it will be because people manage to organize themselves in movements large enough to matter. I will say that I'm optimistic, save for the fact that climate change is the first time-limited problem that we've ever really run into. And time, uh, Dr. King would say at the end of speeches, quoting from the Massachusetts abolitionist Theodore Parker, he would say, The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. This may take a while, but we're going to win. The arc of the physical universe is short, and it bends toward heat. We win soon, or we don't win. So that's the part that gives me pause. That's the part that makes me very grateful that people like you guys are working hard on the other side of this equation, figuring out how to get this stuff out of the atmosphere and back where it belongs i don't know whether we can make this equation square in the time we have or not there are days like last week with seven million people in the streets when i feel hopeful there are (laughs) days when i look at you know the damage that the last hurricane did in the bahamas and think we may have waited a little too late to get started here and if we did it's as much my fault as anyone on the planet because I knew about this, understood it sooner than others and wasted 15 years, you know, writing books when I should have been building movements, you know. But we do what we can from where we are and it's going to take everybody with their particular set of skills and particular approaches, not just doing those things but figuring out how to make them work cooperatively that will get us where we are if, if we can get there still. Mm.
1: I wouldn't be too hard about your, on yourself about writing books. Sometimes it takes writing books to books ins- are very
2: useful. inspire movements. Books are very useful, but they, um, you know, my theory of change when I was 27 and wrote the End of Nature was people will read my book and then they will change. That's actually not how it happens. <laughs> not if you have inspired opposition with uh, you know, a few trillion dollars ready to spend on making sure change doesn't happen. Then you have to figure out what the currency of change is. For social movements, it's passion, it's spirit, it's creativity. Sometimes it's being willing to spend your body and go to jail. So those are the things we make use of.
1: So I wanted to pick up on something you said. You said, we are going to win. Who is we? And- how are we our own worst enemies?
2: History indicates that victory in social movements doesn't come when you get 51% of people or 90% of people. You need to get 3 or 4% of people really engaged in a fight to usually win. That's because, and this is a very helpful thing to remember, apathy cuts both ways. So trust me, it took enormous amounts of good organizing to get 7 million people in the streets around climate change. And we were worried about how many porta-potties they were and were the communication links right and, you know, on and on and on. We were not worried about the next day 7 million people will come in the streets demanding more global warming. You know, that we weren't worried about apathy cuts both ways. So building social movements is hard, but those are the tipping points. And you can tell by looking at what happened in 50 years ago with the first Earth Day in the U.S. We think 20 million Americans, 10% of the then population of the U.S. was in the streets. Almost certainly the biggest day of protest in American history. And that was enough. Within a year or two, Richard Nixon, who you guys are too young to remember, but who had not an environmental bone in his body, signed into law all the laws, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the Endangered Species Act, on which, you know, all the laws that Donald Trump et al. are currently doing their best to gut. That's what happens when movements build. Whether we can build this one in time, we will see. Interesting couple more questions we wanted
1: to ask you. So I'm going to try to sneak this one in because I think it's so interesting when you look at all of the different strategies for climate change solutions out there. There's a large continuum, there's a large spectrum and 350.org and Mm. the movements that have followed from those footsteps have gone in one direction. But I'm curious on your opinion on the diversity of communication strategies for addressing climate change. What are you thinking of? And well, where some might fail or succeed. I mean, I for one, get really frustrated whenever I see a greenwash, but you see greenwash strategies being effective. Communications of climate change that at least mollify people who might be pushing against a company because it's like, oh, look at us. Like We banned plastic straws, so get off our back. Right. But there's a tact. You can take the tact of, let me shame you into doing something because this is wrong. Let me inspire you with hope to maybe lead you to the promised land.
2: I'm willing to do some of each. I mean, I have a cover story in the cover of Time Magazine this week about a kind of looking back from 2050 and what we did that managed to let us survive. I think that my friends who are working on the Green New Deal are doing tremendous work I think in offering a vision for this country and this world that might actually capture people's imagination and work. I really love it. But those people are came straight out of the, I mean the people, kids writing the Green New Deal at the Sunrise Movement came straight out of the campus divestment movement on fossil fuels, that's where they cut their teeth, where they were correctly raging at the fossil fuel industry for its amoral irresponsibility. It doesn't strike me that just in the same way that you go through different moods in the course of a day, the idea that there's kind of one key in which to pitch every message that you you know want to deliver seems odd. I mean, I'm a writer. I know you have. I mean, if you just keep I mean, it's as if we just conducted this whole interview in a monotone, or if we uh, did it all in perky. You know, I mean, we, you know, you gotta, you, you gotta, you gotta. I, I will say, honesty does seem to be a useful trait over time. When we started 350, people were like that's too depressing. You know, no, we say people can deal with it. I mean, yes, we're past 350; it's bad news. Human beings can deal with bad news. You know, I mean, that's what mature people do but putting
0: that goal out there of 350 is also a way of inspiring potentially some people could be you go. say it's impossible but others could say like Nori we're going to rise to the occasion and make our mission reverse You
2: do it change. absolutely yeah, exactly
1: well, right we're not doing it alone at all you no, no. want the world to do it absolutely um, but you know what you use the word truth i think it's so important it remain, reminds me of this phrase which every time i hear it it gives me chills which just speak truth to power mm. then yeah that's totally what's happening right now and you have a bunch of kids who have the gumption and guts to stand up mm. against power so final question bill because i know you're trying yeah. to get out of here and we got to get you on stage to go inspire some people but <laughs> who is who is your best critic or to put otherwise, who is the smartest person who disagrees with you?
2: Huh. I, I think actually at this point, I mean, on the sort of basic issues of things, I can't think of the opposition to the idea that we need to stop pouring carbon into the atmosphere is universally just driven by some combination of ideology and and greed. At this point, I mean, on the basic points around climate change, there is, I think, no serious opposition that I can think of doesn't mean there isn't opposition but I, and it doesn't mean it's not effective I mean there are the story of the last 30 years is that the fossil fuel industry figured out how to hijack the science and turn it into a debate about whether or not global warming was real a debate that diverted us for 30 years even though as we now know from great reporting, all sides, including the fossil fuel industry, knew exactly what was going on 30 years ago, just that one of them was willing to lie. And they were very effective at it. I mean, look, they've convinced the president of the United States that climate change was a hoax manufactured by the Chinese. Uh, You know, a sentiment delusional enough that if the guy next to you on the bus was muttering it under his breath, you'd get up and change seats, you know. But this guy is president of the United States. He pulled America out of the Paris Accords. He's you know, gutted even the most obvious things like automobile emission improvements. I mean, so they're not serious critics, but they're super effective.
1: And if you are one of those critics and you feel strongly about burning fossil fuels and not paying for the externality, please <laughs> come on the podcast. We'd love to talk to you. And I want to hear that one too. Yeah, we'll, we'll let you surface your ideas. Well, thanks so much for coming on, Bill.
2: Really Guys, this is terrific, and thank you for what you're doing. It's Thank you for what you're doing on the podcast, but more thank you what you're doing in, in the world. Nothing could be much more important than figuring out how to get some of that carbon out of the air.
1: Thank you.